A um, couple of quick things. One, the, um, uh, when, we're, when we're in time, when we're singing as a part of our worship, uh, you've probably noticed if you've been coming for a while, if you've gone to church places, that sometimes there'll be a little musical interlude. That's not just um, to show off the talent of our band and musicians, although it certainly does that beautifully. Um, it's meant to take a second for you to pause and consider what you've been singing, because it's a kind of a natural thing for us to get into a song and just sing, and we don't even realize the words we're saying and how significant they are. So just know when those happen, engage with that in that moment. Take hold of that in that moment. Um, also, just for fun, to let you guys know, um, part of what I get excited about, about the Scott Fest, under its various names over the years that we've been hosting it, um, it's, is that it is such a different experience. And there are so many people who will be here next Saturday who would normally <clears throat> not come to a church and would feel uncomfortable even at church by nature, the fact that it is church. And so we really love to, to get to experience that. And it is a great opportunity for us. It is um, a family-friendly event. It's bring your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, whatever, for a little while, and then come back and serve for a few hours um, as an opportunity to reach into the community in some cool ways. This year has been especially fun because I've gotten to watch Blake um, who knew nothing about really this event, learn about this event. And there have been some really awesome times of communication, like as he's been trying to ramp up and, and see what is going on with this event, like when he gets an email that says, hey, remember uh, that we need to keep an eye out. Some of those Scotsmen are really, uh, are really generous with their scotch. And just know that like, oh, by the way, you just be aware of the fact there may be somebody wandering around the fifth of scotch offering slugs to anybody, not very, and like, just know, like, hey, what are we going to do in that moment? These are all things that have happened, by the way. These are the, um, and like, okay, it was a family-friendly event, probably shouldn't be just offering the slug to all the kids. And so, um, uh, so that's one. And then he's like, what, what have you gotten me into? Like, uh, then it is the, oh, and make sure, have we, have we communicated clearly to all the Scotsmen and Scotswomen who are going to be competing in stuff that they need to wear things under their kilt? Uh, don't, don't forget that. Well, uh, we know the tradition, but here at this event, we're going to ask that you just, you know, do that. Um, uh, and he's like, Chris, like, what have you got? What, are, what is the, and then the most recent one was, hey, when the, to, hey, remind the sword fighters, the reenactors that we have no problem with shield bashing and, and maces and swords and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, just as a trigger warning, let's, let's just not have like, you know, a, a male hold a woman and just smack her. Like, let's just Let's not do that for this event. And he's like, I'm telling you, Chris, what, I do not know what you've got me in. What is this event? It's like that. So if no, no other reason, just come next Saturday to observe Blake experiencing this event that he's now in charge of. It will be, it'll be worth the entertainment value of that alone as he's walking around. Anyway, so um, this is a fantastic thing. I love it, and I really would love to encourage you to attend, to be part of it, and even more so to step in and, and serve <coughs> in some way. Um, listen, it is a... It is a rare thing in this day and age for people to get to welcome, be welcomed freely and even graciously. Thank you for coming. That's a rare thing in today's world. And for people to get to experience that here in the name of Jesus Christ is a powerful thing. And to get to be a part of that is a powerful thing. So I want to encourage you um, to make sure if that's not on your calendar, add it. All right. Jumping into 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to, to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. <coughs> At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. 
The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he, meaning Eli, said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again and the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, <clears throat> for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, speak, for your servant hears. And he said, Does not say, Speak, Lord. We'll talk about that. Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is the story, this is the account of once again God rescuing his people. This was the pattern of God and his people. The people wandered off and they rebelled and they ignored him and they forgot him and then he remembered them. And then he would go off and, and they, he, would, he would restore them and bless them and then they would forget him and ignore him and go off their own way. And, and then he would gather them back together again. And this has happened over and over again. This has been the melody. It's been the chorus of the story of God and humanity over and over again already in the Bible by the time we get here. So we're not surprised to see it again. We see the time during the judges when the visions are not there, when the voice of the Lord is not heard or at least not listened to. And, and instead, we have no one is calling out to the Lord. And then finally, when someone does, God steps in and sweeps in. It's amazing how, how sad and almost pathetic a little invitation God gets. It's just one woman who's desperate for a child. And God takes that as his invitation to step back in fully and completely and re-deliver his word to his people. Verse 1 of chapter 3, notice this, this brackets the whole, the whole account. We'll get to the second part next week. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. In verse 21, we're going to see the reversal of that. This, this section is the key moment. It is the bracket of the event. The Word of God is coming back to His people. He's going to do it, and He's going to do it here in our sight in chapter 3. We don't know what age Samuel was at this point. We never know at what age Samuel was. Josephus, the Roman-slash-Jewish historian, uh, was, he, he was of the opinion that Samuel was 12. Unless he has some insight that we don't have, he can't possibly know that. That's just what he thinks. But that's not a bad guess. The word boy here means something more than very small child, which we've already run into that. It means something less than adult male. And so he is a boy, somewhere in probably in that range, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, somewhere in there. Can't be known for sure. We know from chapter 2, verse 21, that he was growing in the presence of the Lord. And here we see that he is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Now, what does this mean? What's going on here? Um, I think this is significant. And it is kind of impressive that when we realize the word of the Lord was not heard. Isn't that fascinating? We, we're going to read how Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word, had not been, the word of the Lord had not been given to him. 
I want to encourage us to take a second at the very beginning of the sermon and look at our family. I want you to examine your family, the fa- your, your friends, your family, your nieces, your nephews, your children, your grandchildren, your family, and ask, have they been introduced to the Word of the Lord? Have you done that? Here we have a child who's grown up from probably three or four years old to probably 10 or 12 years old in the tabernacle, and he has not yet been introduced to the Word of the Lord. How is that possible? It's possible. We do it all the time. Many, many of you out there would say, I, as the parent, have done little to nothing to introduce my child to the Word of the Lord. The other day, um, I was, uh, Ginger, super, super faithful at introducing our children to the Word of the Lord. Um, it's shocking to me how much Scripture they know. I think, I didn't know, I don't know fully, but I think Michael had something where he was supposed to quote a passage. And, and it wasn't, they didn't tell him like which passage. And so what I saw him carrying was this whole list of passages that he could choose from. Because he knows all these different passages of Scripture And Ginger had written out for him just the locations, just the address for these different verses for him to choose from. And he knew all of them. This is is our kids know that because of her faithfulness in this, she is so faithful to make sure our children from really before they can speak (laughs) know the word of the Lord. This is a big deal. It is a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path in dark times. We'll get there. So it's, it's a good question. It is not the church's job first. It is the family's job first to bring up our children to know the Lord and to know His Word. Yes, that is also the church's job in coordination with the family and in integration with the family. When the family can't or won't do that, of course that's us too. It's not a competition. It's a duplication. I'll take all of it I can get. As many of you who want to be parents to my children, I'll take it. As many of you want to be parents to me, I'll take it. We all need lots of people to exemplify the maternal and paternal traits of God to our kids. And we need that. We need lots of that kind of stuff. That's not, it's not in competition with me for you to invest in my children. So you want to be a special friend to one of my kids in children's ministry? Go for it. I would love it. I'll take all I can get. This is a, this is a powerful message that our children need to hear. Where they need to hear it first is at home. And somehow... In the tabernacle in God's home, Samuel still hadn't. All right, so verse 2, jumping in, not subtle. The word is rare. There was no frequent vision. The author here is not going to be subtle in the presentation of this. There was no frequent vision. Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his place. Yeah. So we've got a blind priest. In a time when God's vision was not seen. There's imagery here, and of course there's details. The truth was he was losing his eyesight. Both are true. His gifts of perception are lacking. Perception is something he's bad at. He does not perceive things. When he sees a woman praying in the tabernacle, he thinks she's drunk. That's bad perception. He's blind to the behavior of his sons who are getting away with everything but murder, and he's not doing much about it. He's not restraining them. It's as if he doesn't want to see it. He is unaware. The lamp of God, verse 3, as if that wasn't enough, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. 
So now we got to unpack something. The good Jewish audience reads that and they're like, oh, yeah, of course. Well, that makes total sense. And we have no idea what's being talked about. So let me unpack this a little bit. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant in a little more detail. Um, I'm going to get a lot more detail about the Ark of the Covenant. And yes, we're going to use Scripture, and we also might go to our primary source for all of us for the Ark of the Covenant. I think I have that reference up here on screen. Yes, there it is. All right, good. So this is, this is our primary source for most of us, what we know about um, God's Ark of the Covenant. Um, and we'll, So we'll go to the primary source here for sure, and also we might throw in some Bible as we talk about it too. Um, there's three other main items in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant is actually in a 15 by 15 square foot room um, by itself. There's nothing else in there but the Ark of the Covenant. In the other section, a 30 by 15 section, there are three items. Number one is the table of the showbread. It's located on the right side, the north side of the holy place. The table is made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold, measured about three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two feet three inches tall. It held the bread of the presence. Each Sabbath, so each Saturday, the priest would place 12 new fresh loaves in two rows of six, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, this was, this was, these were set out and left out as a perpetual food offering to the Lord. It's meant to represent the fact that God abides here with these 12 tribes. He's abiding here. This is his home. This is his bread. We are preparing bread and seeding it here as a reminder to all of us that he is here with us. He fellowships with us. He sups with us. He eats with us. He picnics with us. He dines with us. He lives life with us here. And it's meant to be a reminder to them um, that God is present. This is his home. Second is the altar of incense. The altar's inner structure is made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. It was not large, about 18 inches square by 36 inches high. Priests brought the burning coals from the altar that's outside, the altar where the animals are sacrificed and burned. So coals from that were, came, were, were brought in and laid in the this altar of incense, the incense is in there, then is heated and wafts into the air. The incense is made from gum resin and tree sap from certain trees. It's another chemical made from the shellfish common in the Red Sea. Another um, one made from plants and the parsley family. And finally, of course, frankincense. Um, frankincense, which is also um, resin from a tree. That's all frankincense is, is resin from a tree. It's just very hard to get very expensive. Every morning and every evening, the, the altar is refilled with this incense, and then burning coals are laid in there to create the smoke that smells good and that rises up to the air. This is meant to represent the prayers of the people of God. This represents communion, communication, conversation. That's what this represents. We are in constant communication with Almighty God. He lives here, right here with us in our presence. And then third, you have the oil lamp of the Lord, which is what's being talked about in this passage. So to understand this, unlike the others, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, summarize from Exodus 25. Unlike the others, it is not acacia wood covered with gold. This is pure gold, one solid piece of gold hammered into these shapes. Its base, shaft, cups, ring of outer leaves, and petals are to be one piece of gold shaped into 
Six branches extending from the sides of the central post. Three branches on one side, three on the other. It's to be made of three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a ring of outer leaves and petals on each side. Um, and that those are the six branches that spread out from it. It's often sometimes called the menorah, right? So this is, we don't know exactly what it looked like at the time of Samuel. Um, some people think that the branches were actually came out straight from the centerpiece. Some think it was curved. It's impossible for us to know. We do know by the time of Jesus that they were curved because we have this fascinating archaeological find called the Arch of Titus, which is the victory um, of the emperor um, over Israel when he took everything, stole everything from the temple in A.D. 70. And in the Arch of Titus in Rome, it shows this, this carved um, kind of frieze of the, the Roman armies hauling their supplies, hauling all the stuff they're stealing from the temple, and sticking up out of the top of it is the menorah, the solid gold menorah, and it looked like this. So we know at the time of Jesus what it looked like. No one knows for sure at the time of Samuel what it looked like. Here's the instructions about this oil lamp, which obviously would have put off quite a bit of light. The instructions are, in Exodus 27, you shall command the people of Israel that they will bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light. We could spend a whole other hour talking about nothing but the olive oil. We actually do when we go to Israel, spend about that much time talking about the olive oil. Um, it's hugely important to Israel. But the first pressing of the oil, the weight of the olive itself, the weight of the olives itself presses the most pure oil. That oil is used only in the religious ceremonies, only with the priests. It's the best oil, and it is not allowed, humans are not allowed to have it, or we're not allowed to have it, only for God. Um, so the olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside of the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it, listen, from evening to morning before the Lord. Now, it won't surprise you that these four items in the tabernacle are set up as a cross. That will not surprise you. Um, however, it, it may, you may not know that what's being said here is the temple, that, I mean the tabernacle, the, the lamp went out every day. The lamp went out in the morning. It was filled in the evening, tended throughout the night, so that about the time the sun was coming up, the oil lamp would be going out. So here's what I want you to catch, all that to point this out. This is, a, this is therefore, the oil lamps are going out. The, the, notice that the author doesn't just say, and it was really, really early in the morning, like almost sunrise. No, what he says is, the oil lamp had not yet gone out. It was at its dimmest point, but had not quite yet gone out, and the sun had not yet come up. In other words, in the tabernacle, this is the darkest moment of any given day. When the lamp is at its lowest and the sun has not yet come up, this is when it's at its darkest. So we're at a time when there is no vision from the Lord, under a blind priest, when the lamp of God is at its lowest and the sun has not yet risen. This is as dark as it gets. The author is making it clear to us. This is a dark moment. This is peak darkness. Now, I just have to comment, there are a lot of Americans who think we're in peak darkness in America now. I just, I just want to make a couple of comments about that. One, historically speaking, clearly not true. Um, it can get worse, not to encourage you. But second, for us to know, here's what's cool about peak darkness for Christians this is when we shine the best. When I hear Christians worried and panicked because of how bad things are getting and how scary things are getting, 
I realize there, we're, it's easy for us to miss the point. No, no, this is when we shine all the Our little lights don't have to shine that bright when it's really dark. When it gets really dark, we can shine out in new ways. And so for us as Christians, it's, it's kind of like the whole buy, what's, what is the, the only one rule in the stock market? Two parts, one rule. Buy, low, sell, good, which is what no one does. By the way, have you noticed this? Things start, start going down, and what is everybody doing? Sell, 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 panic, panic, sell, sell. All the stock brokers are like, no, don't do it. If you call your stock broker today and go, I think I want to sell a bunch, he's going to say like, please, please don't, please. No, no, now is not the time. Don't sell when it's not worth much. Hold on. In fact, if you're smart, you'll buy now, which is so counterintuitive. For us as Christians, it's kind of the same thing. Man, things are getting really bad. Yes. This is when we can really shine. This is when people start getting, realizing they're lost. And I'll tell you, it's easy to get someone saved when they know they're lost. I've done enough wilderness work to know. When someone knows they're lost, they're happy for you to guide them. They are looking for someone to help them out, anybody. But man, when they think they know their way, they're not interested. No, no, we're good. I'm good. I mean, you're headed straight for a cliff and you're going to die. I'm good. But when they know, oh gosh, I nearly walked off that cliff. Things are falling apart in my life. What am I supposed to do? That's when we as Christians are at our best. I mean, I've got a thought here. I've got this compass that always points north. Maybe I could help you out. It's a good thing for us to remember. All right, Amos, keep in mind, Amos in Amos 8, this is one of those scary passages from, the, from God's judgment for the people of Israel. In Amos chapter 8, in verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirsty one for water, but the hearing of the words of the Lord. I'm going to send a famine on the land, and what people are going to be starved for is my word. And I think we're moving into a famine like that in America if we're not there already. This is part of God's judgment on any group of people. What I'm going to do to judge you is I'm going to restrict you. It's a fascinating thing that as Christians, we fall into the same boat. How many of us go day after day after day, week after week, month after month, without cracking open God's word and studying it ourselves? You realize someone who has no Bible... If you have a Bible and you don't read it, you have no advantage over someone who has none. There's no, there's no advantage. If you don't read it, if you don't study it, if you don't look into it, if you're not digging into it, that's, what, that's a very powerful thing for us. And we as Christians, we should see that as like we've got food stored up. What is it? It's God's Word. So the, at least the boy is in the right place. I tell people, we, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I'm in the right place um, here at South Spring. Like I don't, I don't think we know what we're doing, and we don't. But I think I may be in the right place. And that's the same kind of thing. The, at least the boy was in the right place. Where exactly was he? Man, this, this kind of makes your, you, you sit up and, and take note when it says that he's in the temple by the ark. Um, it makes you think like, whoa, whoa, is he in the Holy of Holies? Is Samuel in the Holy of Holies? Not super likely. Um, more likely, he's anywhere within the fabric wall that goes even around the edge of the tabernacle that makes up most of the size of the tabernacle. Um, they were most likely were sleeping outside. Now, there is going to be a reference here in a second that indicates that it may be that he, at least Samuel, and maybe Samuel and Eli are sleeping inside the tent. That was done, apparently. It wasn't common, but it was done, especially when people were seeking a vision from the Lord, is that the priest might sleep inside the tabernacle tent itself. But there's a different Hebrew word for the Holy of Holies than is used here. So it's unlikely that he's actually snuck in there with the Ark of the Covenant. Aside from the fact that's a good way to get killed um, 
It probably is not what was going on. But let's watch closely. It's about to expand in fascinating ways. Verse 4, Then the Lord called Samuel, and, and he said, Here I am. Now, this is supposed to be a little bit funny, because they know, we know, because we get to read it, the author let us know from verse one, the very first verse here that it's the Lord calling. But they don't know that. This is a fascinating little story when you read it from the perspective of little boy, you know, young man, little boy, whatever, sitting, sleeping, and Eli's sleeping, and all of a sudden, Samuel pops up, runs over to Eli and says, I'm here, you called me. Now, I don't, I don't know what you're used to. Kids, my kids tend to come into the room in the middle of the night in one of two ways. Um, either they explode into the room like they've been shot out of a cannon, Right? It's 4 a.m., you're sound asleep, the door slams open, because clearly either the FBI is raiding you or your four-year-old is coming in to ask for something. And they, they slam the door open and explode into the room, screaming at the top of their lungs, whatever, and, and you know, you're, you're like so panicked by the time they get to you. Um, or, and this is more what we uh, have had more recently, is, is even, I think, even worse, is when they walk in quietly into your room and then they just stand there by your side of the bed. <laughs> Some of you have experienced this? So I, I married to a woman who gets scared if I walk into the room, if we are the only two people home and I was just doing normal stuff. I mean, I just, we're just hanging out and I just come walk in the room and she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you don't do that. Like, I, I didn't do it. I'm just walking. I'm just like here. And so you can imagine the effect on Ginger when she wakes up in the middle of the night and there's a child who only God knows how long they've been standing there staring at you creepily, right? When she's... So now I get, I get both effects. I get the scary kid creeping in and then the sound like an explosion when Ginger realizes they're standing there creeping on her. So um, I don't know how Samuel pulls this off, but it's supposed to, I think it's supposed to be a little funny. So let's, we'll picture it that way. So here you have, that um, makes sense. Of course, Samuel would be used to Eli calling for him. You have a large, old, blind man laying in bed who probably if he needs something in the middle of the night, he calls Samuel. So this is not some strange, probably uncommon experience. So the Lord, so he sends him back to bed. He said, Eli says, I didn't call, lie back down. So he went and lay down. <clears throat> Verse six, and the Lord called again, Samuel. This time we actually get the word. The first time we don't know what, what God says. The Lord calls him, but it doesn't say what he says. Here we get in verse six, the word Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he, Eli, said, I did not call you my son. Lie down again. Again, this is very human. They're, very, they're slightly different each time. I love that. I also love the fact that God knows Samuel's name. I don't know if that's comforting to you, but I think it's really easy for us to imagine God as some kind of big Zeus statue in a tabernacle or temple somewhere who everybody is just like citizen to him, you know? Citizen, I have heard your prayers type of thing versus realizing, no, no, Samuel. He's calling him by his name. He knows him. This time, it's Samuel's name clearly. Samuel doesn't call back like he did the first time. The first time Samuel yells back, what? Here I am. And yet no one answers, so he goes, mistake, it wasn't me. We know the secret, they don't. And it should cause us to wonder why Samuel doesn't know the voice of God. I mean, I don't know what God's voice sounds like, but I wouldn't sound, think it sounds like a frail old man. Verse 7 tells us, he didn't know because Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now some of us, like Samuel, don't know the Lord because his word has not yet been revealed to us. And, and that can be any, any number of things. You've been sitting in church your whole life, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit opens up the veil of his word for the first time, and it suddenly makes sense to you, 
and suddenly you realize, I need to know the Lord. And if that's you, whenever that happens, if you don't know the Lord and someday you suddenly realize, oh, I want to know the Lord. When you hear Him call your voice, let us know. We'd love to pray with you. But I've got a comment. Uh, Alistair Begg, and Alistair Begg's not known for this. Alistair Begg, in his teaching on this passage, at some point leaned across his podium and pointed into his crowd, which again, he does not do very often, and says, some of you don't know God because you don't want to. Some of you don't know God because you've closed your ears to Him. Some of you don't know God because you have chosen to not know the Lord. There's two different ways of not knowing the Lord, and one is Samuel's. He has not yet heard the word. And one is Eli's sons, which is, I like the life I have better without him. I've chosen to not know him. I don't know where you are in that, but I would tell you, don't let that stay. Verse 8, the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli, here it is, finally happens. Then Eli perceives. Not his strong point. This isn't one of his gifts. But it only took three times for Eli, the high priest, to finally perceive that the Lord is speaking. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. In the dark morning, the blind priest, the truth finally dawns on him. Pun intended. It took three times before Eli realized that someone was calling Samuel. In fact, this language is extraordinary. The word here is ben. The Hebrew word ben. To discern. To understand. To perceive to get it. It's a powerful word, almost of conversion. Oh, now I get it. And what does he get? I think this is startling when we think about it. What does he get? He gets that the Lord is calling Samuel, which means he gets that the Lord is speaking and not to him. Here we have Eli and the recognition. All of this has happened God is calling Samuel. God is speaking. Finally, God is speaking in the tabernacle, and it isn't to Eli. How sobering must that be? I want us to experience something for a second. Now, this is intriguing. This is a, this is a hearing test. And I'll explain why I want to do this here in a second. We're going we're gonna to do this, a hearing test. So what I'm going to have is, is, in a second, everybody raise their hand and keep your hand up until you can no longer hear what's on the screen. Okay? Are we ready? Actually, I can't see because the lights are in my eyes. I hope they're ready. Okay, hands up. Everybody's hands up. And then when you can't hear what's on the screen, let your hands go down. Okay, ready? Go for it. Keep your eyes on the little ones. <laughs> and there it goes. The last few. Okay. Very cool. I wanted to experience that for a couple of things. One, it's just cool. Uh, 
that, that however old you are can be determined by how well you hear. Now, I, di- I did notice, and I've got to, I've got to tease Michael. Michael, I noticed your hands went down a little early. You listened to rock and roll when you were a kid, didn't you? Uh-huh. See? Stood too close to the speakers. Um, if you've got that rock and roll kind of misspent youth, too much time listening to the, high, the heavy metal, your hand went down a little early. <laughs> um, but it is fascinating that that's the, my dad, when we first showed him this, thought it was a prank. He thought we were trying to pull a joke on him. Like, no, no, we really can still hear it. Dad, you just can't. Like, it's a, here's what I wanted to, I wanted to try to create a moment of experiencing being deaf, silent, not hearing. So I think, I think it's intriguing just to know someone's hearing what I'm not. It's a great example for them. Um, uh, this is a, it's a good thing because I want us to have the emotion just in the tiniest sense of what it's like that Eli can't hear. Because I think, I don't know this, the Bible doesn't say this, because I think once Eli realized that God had spoken to Samuel, and he sends Samuel back to bed, and he says, I want you to go in bed and listen. And if, the, if it's the Lord, if the Lord speaks, you say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I think Eli probably didn't go to sleep. I think Eli probably laid in his bed straining to hear the voice of the Lord and was deafened. The silence for him was deafening. This is a powerful picture, I think, as we experience this. Verse 9, therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant here. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Apparently, Eli knows this indicates a problem, as we'll see, see very soon. So I think maybe, maybe Eli was sitting there hoping to hear the Lord's voice if he listened hard enough. I don't know that. It's not here. Maybe he was already resigned. Maybe Eli had given up to hearing the voice of the Lord, whatever. Maybe from the time the mysterious man of God came and told him God was done with him, maybe he had stopped even trying. I don't know. Young Samuel, maybe he's lying also in wait, or maybe with the being a teenage boy, probably, he just crashed like they do. Verse 10, and the Lord came and stood calling as at other times. Listen to that. Do you see that in verse 10? And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel, twice this time. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. He does not say what Eli told him to say. He does not say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And I think that's just another way of reminding us Samuel does not know the Lord. He doesn't know to call him Lord. He's not going to call some stranger Lord. He doesn't know that he's Lord. But notice the Lord came and stood. The vision and the word combined. Something's changing. This is a time when there is no vision of the Lord. And now the Lord is coming and standing in the presence of a child in the tabernacle. God is going to step this into a new life. He's stepping into the life of his people again in a new way. The voice of the Lord has come. The vision of the Lord has shown back up. This should be eager and exciting anticipation. And we see that. Verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, behold. Remember, that's just listen. Listen. I'm about to do a thing in Israel in which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. One pastor pointed out, this isn't just a one-ear tingle. This is a two-ear tingler. Not just one ear, both ears. Everybody's two ears are going to tingle, right? Spoiler alert, as we get into the next section, this cool new thing that God's about to do, stepping into the life of his people in a new way, bringing new management into the spiritual leadership of Israel, it will start with the utter defeat of the people of Israel. The capture of the ark of God by the enemies of Israel. The death of the priest and his sons and thousands more Israelis and the destruction of the temple forever. 
That's how it's going to start. That's not exactly the ear-tingling experience that we were hoping to have. But that's how it's going to start. Verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. I told you that God took very seriously what they were doing when we talked about what what the sons of Eli were doing. How serious this was to him. This is, quote, unforgivable. God has already judged them and has found them so lacking that he says, at this point, even them returning to me, it's over. I'm done with them. I will, this is almost like you could, we, when we discuss the covenants of the Bible, I'm always tempted to throw this one in there as one of the covenants. It's not one of the good ones. It's a powerful language. This is super serious. Eli knew about his son's iniquity. He knew about their blasphemy, and he refused to restrain them. If you want to be slightly more offended, we're going to see in the next couple of chapters that at least one of the sons of Eli was married and had a pregnant wife and was still doing the stuff that he was doing in the tabernacle. The level, again, the level of offense and evil just continues to pile up. There's no turning this around. The disdain that they had and contempt that they had for his laws, his hospitality, and his tabernacle. Now notice the reversal of fortunes, just like Hannah had acknowledged. There's one story going on here that feels like two. The proclamation of the blessing for Eli and his, the end of the blessing for Eli and his family and the elevation of the humble child Samuel are happening simultaneously. Neither the judgment of Eli and his family nor the elevation of Samuel take precedence over the other. Why? Because it's one story. The protagonist is not Samuel and the antagonist may or may not be Eli, but it's the faithlessness of Israel. The protagonist of the story is still God. So it's one story about a God who exalts the humble and deposes the proud. One story about that happening. We see that played out in God's character. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. That may indicate he was on the inside of them. We don't know. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Maybe you've been there. God doesn't you don't want to tell them the bad news. This is all bad news. And nothing, maybe, maybe Samuel was tempted to sugarcoat it. But we know, here's where we find out that we know Eli knew this was bad news because Eli is going to threaten Samuel with the message God gave Samuel. Well, if if Eli thought there was a chance that God's message to Samuel was, hey, listen, no harm, no foul. I'm I'm, I'm all okay with Eli. In fact, he's going to win the lottery and win a billion dollars this week. That would not be something you would threaten someone with. No, Eli knows that this is bad news. You'll see. He knows it's going to be ugly. Verse 16, Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, again, same word, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do, to, do so to you and more if you hide anything from me at all that he told you. Does Eli know this is bad? Yes, he does. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he, Eli, says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This, in my mind, is, the, is a powerful revelation of how little Eli knows God. Of just how little he knows. 
This is when one of the ministers who I was listening to mentions, this is when you meet a tape recorder or a video. The Word doesn't do it. We don't know how to evaluate Eli's tone here. What's going on here? Was this Eli's finally his moment of faith? He is the Lord. Is this Eli's moment like, like Mary, the mother of Jesus? Um, may the Lord do, as, do unto his servant as he wills. Like, is that, is that what this is? We see Saul do something like that at the end of his life. Is Eli finally stepping up and, and finally stepping up in faith? Maybe. Or does this just indicate yet again that Eli doesn't know the Lord well enough to go into the tabernacle and fall on his face and beg forgiveness? We've seen God do it. Jonah knows God does that. That when God proclaims in no uncertain terms, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. I'm going to utterly destroy it. It's done. So you go tell them so that when I destroy them, it will be just because they won't respond. And Jonah's like, yeah, but they might. And I really hate those people. I deeply hate the Assyrians, just like everybody else does. And I hate the people in the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. I want it destroyed. So I'm going to run the other direction. Because you know what? You say you're going to destroy them, but here's what I know about you. You are a God who relents. And, and I think it's fascinating that Eli doesn't even try. Here he is, the priest in the tabernacle, and he doesn't even try. He doesn't do what even like Joab does later and go and throw himself on the, the horns of the altar itself and beg for forgiveness to try to hide at least from God's judgment in God's presence. Not what he does. I don't know. Here's what I do know. We've seen this all through. I would tell you, wherever you are, don't assume that God's done with you. I don't think we should ever assume that. Is it possible? Apparently. But if we're still wrestling with it, then maybe he isn't. And maybe we can still fall upon his name and call upon his name and ask him to bring us in and to forgive us. Here's a fascinating thing. We learned a very important Hebrew word in this section. A very important Hebrew word. Hineni. Hineni is the Hebrew word that means here am I. We see it in this passage over and over again. Here am I. That's what he says to Eli over and over again. A lot of famous and important Jewish people have said this. Abraham said it when the angel of the Lord said, calls to him when he's about to kill his son tied to an altar. And Abraham says, hey, Nenny, here am I. I'm listening. I hear you. Jacob says it again when he's called to join his son in Egypt, his son Joseph in Egypt. And God calls upon him, and Jacob says it also, here am I. I'm listening. I hear what you're saying. Moses says it. When God sees that Moses had turned aside to see the burning bush, he calls to Moses, and Moses says, Hanani, here I am. Samuel, of course, says it. One of my favorites, even though it's not in Hebrew, I think probably this is what Ananias said in Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. I think if he was speaking Hebrew, that obviously he used that very famous word, Hanani, Hanani, that word. It means here I am. This is, by the way, because um, Ananias is willing to do this, he gets to go and disciple and comfort and heal the man who would become the Apostle Paul. Very, very often we see this pattern in Scripture. Is it the thing we're begging God for, the thing we're looking to God for, the thing that we're asking God for? starts not with us demanding or asking something from Him, but starting by saying, you don't owe me anything. Here am I. 
If, if you think, well, God, what if, what if God's calling me to this life or that life? What if God's, it's the opposite attitude of the, of the, of the mindset we will have of saying, um, uh, don't send me to Africa or don't ask me to be a missionary or don't, don't make me go talk to these people at my work about Jesus or don't, we're like, it's the exact opposite. It is the attitude that says, no, no, here am I. What do you have for me? It's the dog that comes and checks the hands of the master. What do you have in your hands for me? Here I am. I'm here. What have you got? That's the mindset that we're all called to. And this passage is one of those that's meant to make us ask the question, is that us? Are we, do we live in that relationship with God that we live in the stance of, here I am, what have you got? That's what we're called to. So I want to challenge you, whatever it is in your life, and what we see over and over again is when people come to God and say, here I am, what have you got? That's when God does something that makes people's ears tingle when we have that, that mindset. So I encourage us, each of us, in a minute as we stand. In fact, go ahead and stand with me. As we stand, as we pray, as we sing, that let that be the message of our heart. I need to learn and I need to grow and I need to change. <clears throat> what is it that you have for me, Lord? That we write a blank check and hand it over. We sign a blank check and hand it over to him. Whatever you've got, that's where I'm going. I'm going to trust you with that. See, I left out one for us to read about here in our time of invitation. It's one of the most telling examples in Scripture. So if, you have, if you've been through our Welcome Home team and you've talked to Lance and others and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can let us know that here when we're singing. If, if you're someone who does not know the Lord, but today all of a sudden it made sense, the Word of the Lord has reached your heart and you want to know the Lord, come on down. If you would say wherever you are in your Christian walk, if you would say, I've never made that proclamation, or in certain to this one area, I've always said, no God, you owe me this. No God, I'm wanting this from you. I demand this from you. I require this from you. And you realize this is the time for you to say, no, I'll let that go. I surrender. Good. We'd love to pray with you about that. What about you? Here's the last one I'll read to us as we wrap up our time this morning. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me.